This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Today, I'd like to welcome Olivia Mitchell to Knowledge at Wharton. She's a Wharton professor of business economics and public policy, and also is the executive director of the Pension Research Council. She's written a research paper with two colleagues that looks at why relatively few Americans, as they save for retirement through their 401k plans with their companies, for the most part, don't take advantage of annuity instruments. Annuities, when done right, have the advantage of providing, as you note in the paper, Olivia, a lifetime benefit stream of payouts. The key word here is lifetime, I think, because that can give retirees some security that they'll never completely run out of money. And uh, with people living longer today, many naturally worry about whether they're going to outlive their money. So thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, appreciate it very much. The title of your paper, by the way, is Putting the Pension Back in 401k Retirement Plans, Optimal versus Default Longevity Income Annuity. So what I want to ask you first is let's just give uh, everyone listening or reading uh, a quick definition of what an annuity is in this case. Sure. Um, in the old days, um, people that did have pension plans tended to have defined benefit plans. And in a defined benefit plan, um, from retirement on, you get a paycheck per month. Um, we so typically that you, think of that as an old-fashioned pension. An old-fashioned pension, and you never run out, yeah. assuming the company who's <laughs> put together the plan right. stays in business. Um, now we have 90 million participants with defined contribution plans, so 401k plans, 403b plans. Um, and typically they have no access to any kind of payout scheme at retirement. Instead, what a lot of advisors will tell people is roll your money out into an IRA account and then we'll help you manage it. But they never, mostly never, come back and say, we want to help you make sure you won't run short. So um, the U.S. Treasury back in 2014 decided to help encourage lifetime income protection. And the way they did it was they said, we will encourage you to take some of your money, not all of it, and in your 401k plan and put it into a deferred income annuity. So this would be a product where it would pay you lifetime benefits, say from age 85 on. Um, and if you do that, and this is something attractive to people that are in middle and higher tax brackets, that amount of money will not be counted against you when it comes to the required minimum distributions. The IRS forces you to take out these so-called RMDs, mm -hmm. required minimum distributions, um, once you're age 70 and a half. But if you set aside up to a quarter of your money in these deferred annuities, that's not counted against you. And so it's a way to both guarantee your longevity protection and reduce taxes. So this is thanks to new rules that we're now able to do that. It could be that A, individuals might not, you know, perfectly understandably be aware of the change in the rules, or even some financial advisors may not quite understand all of these rules. Uh, but that's one thing. And the second thing is, just in general, um, and this is you know, talking very positively about, I'm just calling them annuities to, for, for mm -hmm. shorthand, that, uh, that 
they've had, uh, I, w I don't want to say a checkered pass, but they've, they've had some hits against them because of high fees. Uh, some, of, some of them are great and some of them aren't so great, but because of the ones that aren't so great, they've kind of gotten a bit of a bum reputation in some people's eyes, which hasn't cleared up as better products have come out. Is that, is that about right? I think there are a couple problems with the public's perception of annuities. And one is that the insurance industry has put a lot of bells and whistles on these products. And um, you can understand why they do. So people don't want to buy a lifetime annuity and then worry about being hit by a bus the mm -hmm. moment they leave the insurance office. Mm -hmm. Because then they'll say, oh, all my money went for naught. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's the way that insurance is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. If your house doesn't burn down, you don't get any money from the insurance mm -hmm. company. You were protected. But I think people don't really understand insurance and mm -hmm. annuities are a component of that. Um, the other thing is that people suffer from lump sum illusion. So they think, ooh, I'm rich. I have $100,000 in my 401k account. Not realizing that if they were to convert it into a product that would pay you the rest of your life, if you're male, you'd probably get $6,600 a year. Mm -hmm. If you're female, you'd probably get 6300 because women live longer than men. Mm -hmm. And so they see the $100,000 and don't understand that it really needs to support them for a, quite mm -hmm. a long time in mm -hmm. retirement. Mm -hmm. So um, what were some of the main findings in your paper? Well, so we were interested in trying to think about what an optimal default might be. And by optimal default, what we're looking for is the right sweet spot. So how much should employers encourage their retirees to put into these deferred annuities such that it would make a difference mm -hmm. in old age? It would provide them that longevity protection and it would make a meaningful difference. Now, under these treasury rules, you can defer the annuity at maximum to age 85. And that was the first example that we studied in our model. And if you did that, if what we found is that people would optimally put between 5 and 15% of their nest eggs into these deferred annuities payable at age 85. And this would improve their well-being by 6 to 14%. So... Um, how would it improve their well-being? Because they would be able to consume more in old age by virtue of the fact that they had mm -hmm. not run out of money. So it's not just peace of mind. <laughs> well, it's peace of mind in that um, if, you, if you just draw down your retirement account, say, according to the 4% per year rule of thumb, you could well run out mm -hmm. depending on how long you live and right. how, what you invest your money in. Whereas if you put just a small portion of this account in the deferred annuity, then you still have the rest of your money, which mm -hmm. you can do with as you deem useful, um, but you will be protected against longevity mm -hmm. risk. And then part of our story also analyzed um, what would be kind of a nice middle ground default number. So if, for example, if all US employers with defined contribution plans defaulted workers into deferred annuities worth about 10% of their retirement accounts, they would be a lot better off. I caveat that with the uh, observation that if someone only has $5,000 in his 401k plan, it doesn't make sense to mm -hmm. annuitize. 
because it's not going to last very long. Right. So what we estimated was that if you had at least $65,000 in your 401k plan or more, mm -hmm. then all you would need to do is put 10% of that amount into a deferred annuity and you would be better off by doing so. So it's interesting you mentioned this word default in, in connection with this, but there's been some other developments in this idea of default and how employers handle retirement funds for their employees, which um, I, I, I think you, you say, and you've said in other contexts, that that has benefited employees because uh, it's helping them to make a decision that down the road they will be glad to have made, I guess. Could you explain that, that whole idea of default? There has been a, a, a large body of research around how to help employees save better for this retirement. Is like a behavioral It's a behavioral idea. story, that's mm -hmm. right. And um, many employers have put in place 401k uh, plans, but left it up to the worker to decide, do I want to participate? How much do I want to do? Where do I want to invest it? And people get phased by that big series of complex questions. In mm -hmm. fact, my own two daughters uh, recently started working and they called me up and said, mom, how much should I save and where should I put it? Mm -hmm. So um, in the real world in the US, most employers are now using a default saving rate um, they're also increasingly using auto escalation. So if I default you into your retirement saving plan at 5%, then maybe I'll say next year it'll be 6% unless you opt out 7%. Maybe I'll do it every year by a percent and you won't notice it and you'll be saving more for retirement. So our proposal is looking at defaults on the payout side, which nobody has really focused on yet. Okay. And... Uh, on that payout side, we're talking about annuities for the most part and um, rules that had blocked them in the past uh, but, but are now mm -hmm. gone. It's just that, that um, people and maybe some advisors haven't caught up with that reality. So I think there's two issues. One is that um, individuals in the population are still often misled or misinformed about annuities. Another key point is that many employers been reluctant to automatically plug workers into uh, annuity products because they worry about their own fiduciary liability. Mm -hmm. For instance, if I pick insurance company X as the annuity provider for you and all my other employees, mm -hmm. um, what happens if the insurance company goes bust? Mm -hmm. And I might worry that I would bear liability mm -hmm. downstream. What's interesting now is that there are two bills before Congress um, exactly focused on this point, allowing what we call a safe harbor set of circumstances. So if an employer wants to offer a deferred annuity, then as long as you make sure it's a well-regarded insurance company with the proper characteristics and so on, that employer would be held harmless mm -hmm. for instituting those annuities mm -hmm. in the plan, which I think is probably going to pass. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you do an interesting experiment in, in the paper with two people, age 66, uh, first having an opportunity to buy deferred longevity income annuities and the second not. Could you just give us like the short version of how that turned out? Sure. Um, what we do is we build what we call a dynamic stochastic life cycle model. Of course. <laughs> and um, so what we do is we show for a series of simulations, what would happen to someone that had no protection against shocks 
longevity shocks versus someone that does have protection. Now, these are complex models because not only do you not know when you're going to live till, but you also don't know what your earning stream will look like. It could go up or down. Um, the capital market returns better in some periods than in others. Um, and so all that is taken into account in this model. So we do the analyses for um, people with and without access to the annuities. And the bottom line is that people with the access to the deferred annuities are substantially better off. Substantial. And especially in the latter part of their lifetime. Mm -hmm. So from, say, age 85 or 90 on. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, we don't often want to think about how long we're going to live, much less think mm -hmm. about when we're going to die. But it's completely incorrect to just assume you're going to live your life expectancy. 50% of the people live longer than their life expectancy. It's a mean. And if you do happen to be around at age 95 or 98 or 100 or 104, you're going to need something to consume. And it's that protection that's so valuable. Sounds like it kind of works like Social Security. So absolutely, Social Security is a lifetime annuity, and that's mm -hmm. one of the beauties of the system. Um, however, it only annuitizes you know, a portion of your retirement income. So if you think you need more, if you want to be protected against living too long and your Social Security benefit is you know, $15,000 a year, then you're probably going to live, need to have more to live on. So how would you sum up the key takeaways from this? So I think the key takeaways are that um, longevity protection is extremely important, especially for people who have a lump of money in their 401k plans and hope to make it last their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. They may be able to, they may not. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the fact that you don't know how long you're going to live. There's also the fact that increasingly people at older ages run into financial problems because of cognitive aging, dementia, and whatnot. I know in my own case, when my elderly mother hit her 90s, I wished she had a life annuity mm -hmm. so that I didn't have to try to manage her remaining pennies mm -hmm. so they didn't run out. Mm -hmm. So it helps not only the retiring generation, but the next generation as well. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, was there anything that came out of this that surprised you? Or, or is this kind of what you expected when you took this project on? Well, when we started the project, we picked age 85 as the age when your annuity would start. And one reason we selected that is that's what the law allowed. And number two, if you the longer you defer the annuity, the more buildup you have mm -hmm. inside the product. So the better annuity mm -hmm. you're going to get when you eventually get there. But what we found was when we talked about this idea, a lot of people said, oh, I don't think I'm going to live that long. Mm -hmm. So they said, why don't you propose age 80 instead? So it was just a gut mm -hmm. level heuristic. So we've redone the analysis in a subsequent paper that we're still finalizing. And it turns out age 80 is about the right age <laughs> to do it at. So, so that was surprising Heuristics to work us. sometimes. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so we've talked about public misperceptions, and you talked about there's some new uh, legislation that is being, being looked at. But you also note in the paper that it looks like this sector, these annuities, are, according to industry projections, 
ready to grow faster. Could you talk a little bit about that? So someone's catching on to these ideas. I believe that's the case, that um, annuities, uh, in the, especially in the insurance arena, um, have not been as popular as I think they could be and should be. To the extent that people are not already very annuitized, then I think there's going to be an increasing demand for them. So, for example, let's take the case of a low-wage worker. Such a worker probably is going to get a replacement rate from Social Security of 60-65%. So it's not obvious that you need, on top of Social Security, a whole lot more annuities. Mm -hmm. But a middle or higher-wage worker might get 40 or 45%. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, that's the group that should be, and that's also the group that has a 401k plan, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the group that, A, should be interested in mortality protection, um, longevity protection, and B, that's the group for whom Social Security is a relatively shorter leg of that three-legged stool. Um, and then a C, of course, they're going to be paying a lot of tax on it if they take it out according to the treasury required minimum distribution rule so they can save some money as well. Interesting. So what haven't we talked about in regard to this paper that would be interesting for people to know and also what will you look at next? Um, one of the things that we did in this paper is to try to look at the um, relative attractiveness of deferred annuities for people of different uh, educational and sex groups. So we know that um, in the U.S., employers who offer a benefit have to offer it non-discriminatorily by sex. So you can't pay a woman less in her pension just because she's going to live longer on average. Um, and so we tried to see what would be the differential appeal uh, by different mortality tables by, by sex. We also know in the U.S. that people who have less education tend to have shorter lifespans. They live less long. And so the, the richness of the paper focuses on, well, what about someone that only had a high school degree? Those people have higher mortality. Um, males with high school degrees live less long than average. Would they still benefit from a deferred annuity? And what we found was that our rule of thumb, about a 10% deferral, still is quite attractive over that threshold. You can't go uh, annuitizing people with $5,000. And, uh, and as far as what you'll look at next? Well, we always have a lot of projects that we're cooking on. Um, one related topic is actually called the Pan-European Pension Plan, PEP, P-E-P-P. -E and the Pan-European Pension Plan is a plan that's being designed by the EU to permit labor mobility across different countries in the European Union. There's been a big obstacle to mobility until now because every country had people contributing to the pensions in those countries. But it wasn't always easy to port those pension accumulations or benefit promises across nations. So the EU is now putting in place something a lot like this, probably it will have a portion of a deferred annuity included in it. So that's one project that we're working on. We also have a different project that's related to different taxation structures for pensions. During the, um, the last budget scenario, 
the Trump administration at one point suggested rothifying all pensions. And what that means in English is that instead of letting you put your contributions into a pension on a pre-tax basis and then taxing you later, the administration wants you to wants to tax your contributions earlier at, up, at the upfront point. And then you could take the money out after tax later without paying any more. The advantage from the administration's point of view is that all the taxes that otherwise would occur in the future get levied right at the beginning. And so we know the federal government is in terrible arrears and right. so forth. So they need more um, tax revenue right away. Okay. Well, uh, you can continue. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and then if... If they work it that way, mm -hmm. what happens uh, at the end? Then they will have less revenue at the Correct. end. Correct. So the idea of rothifying all the, uh, the pension contributions really is kind of a tax gimmick in the sense that you bring forward in time revenue that the government, some other administration, would mm -hmm. have gotten otherwise. But of course, right. then you get credit today. Right. There are some real effects as well, however. And so that's really what we're analyzing, which is... Are people going to save more or less? Mm -hmm. Are people likely to um, save in different, different instruments? So, mm -hmm. for example, if you know that um, you're going to pay more tax later, maybe you're going to invest uh, ri riskily um, to take the chance on the upside, but not necessarily be mm -hmm. suffering as much on the downside. But these are things that are still very much right. in progress. Maybe that's another area where you where you uh, tiptoe lightly, right, and maybe change part of it. it you know, a, a percentage would go into Ross, not the whole thing, not a complete Well, makeover. I think it kind of has to be all or nothing. So yeah. this is something else that the Europeans are focused on, because if you work for five years in one country in Europe and five years in another country, and then you retire in a third country, where are you going to be paying the tax? Mm -hmm. So the European countries that are hosting workers at, at different uh, points in their lifetimes, they want the tax up front, thank you very much, because right. what if you retire to Spain and you're right. no longer in their jurisdiction? Right. So from a government financing point of view, the tax uh, becomes very, very important, the timing of the tax. Okay. Well, thanks for coming in. This was great. My pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.com. Dot upenn.edu. Dot